So today we're going to talk about natural law and one of the subject areas we teach in social sciences. We have courses on Catholic social thought and ethics, which are sort of basic courses. And then we try to connect these with four other areas. So one of them is business ethics, economics and social communications. But we also have other areas, just so you know about it, because I'm going to come back to this at the end. Um, history and politics, law and international relations and uh, sociology, anthropology, and psychology. So all the time we're trying to connect the Christian tradition with these modern social sciences that help us understand the modern problems that we are facing today. So today we're gonna to look at natural law and business ethics. Is there a blossoming relationship? So I'd like to split this into three parts, what I call before the relationship, um, which means what was happening in this field before 2009. And basically what we'll see is there's a kind of historical development, which I'll say something about, which leads us to an, a point which is really separated from anything to do with natural law. But we also have some thinkers who are developing natural law thinking at the same time, but they are totally marginal. They are ignored by the mainstream. Then we get to the starting of the relationship. The starting of the relationship is kind of a shotgun marriage, which takes place as a result of this huge change which occurs in the economic world as a result of financial crisis, which shakes to the absolute foundations, the whole economic establishment. Um, so people start looking around for other ideas. So the relationship starts to be built at that point. So then at the end, we'll look at, could this become blossoming, this relationship? So that's, that's the way we're going to work it. Um, so I thought we should look at this historically um, before the financial crisis. And I think a good question to ask is how old is business ethics as a subject? It's not very easy to answer this question. And I think we need to have at least three steps in answering it. Um, the first step would be to say, and those of you who are philosophers and have studied um, you know, uh, theology too, and you've studied philosophy, you will know about this, that there's ancient reflection about economic questions. Um, we all know something about Aristotle's idea of the distinction between oikonomia and krematistike. Oikonomia is the good kind of economics. It's the economics that is about uh, promoting the life of the household. Uh, so it's an economics that's inserted into a way of life. The way of life gives direction to the economic activity, gives meaning to it and purpose. Um, but then we have this unleashed form. This is the crematistike. This is the economic uh, activity, which is just self-referential, which is just about making as much money as possible. And of course, Aristotle sees this as very dangerous, as very um, uh, destabilizing for life and for society. Now, when we get to St. Thomas, we see a little bit of development on this. Um, he's not so universally negative about the crematistique because he's in a different historical circumstance. We've got the beginning of the modern commercial environment. Um, he is in the central country, which is Italy, of course, at that time. That, so they're, they're, he's at the, the forefront of innovation at that time. Um, and he recognizes that some of the work that merchants and other people are doing isn't bad. You know, he's sort of more or less as it's neutral. But he, 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 he starts to make some distinctions within this primitistic part of the, of the ancient reflection. 
And then this connects with the other big issue, pre-modern issue, which is usury. Uh, we know that, that this is discussed in many ancient cultures. We know it's in the Old Testament, of course. Um, and we usually have sort of two considerations regarding usury. One is that usually people are asking for um, loans in, in this ancient period because they're in dire need. So to make money out of somebody who's in dire need by asking for interest for it is seen as a very reprehensible thing to do. Um, but there's also another argument about this, which we see in Aristotle and some other thinkers, which is that money is something sterile, dead. It's not a, a living thing like land or like seeds or like animals. And so we can't expect anything to be produced from money. It's just a form of exchange. It's a dead thing. To, to want to get something out of it is to want something unnatural, something which shouldn't be looked for. Um, now, as uh, St. Thomas is changing a little bit the idea about crematistice, which will also continue to change with later Thomistic thinkers, um, also the consideration about usury is becoming less um, negative. Why? Not because we're becoming worse morally, but because the role of money in society starts to change. Instead of money just being a mere uh, form of exchange and something dead and useless, it starts to become a source of production. And, and this is when we start to get the idea of capital. You know, when we start to get the idea of investment, you know, you don't have the idea of investment in, in um, ancient cultures. So uh, money can start to produce something. It can start to become more like the land and the animals and the plants. It's not just something dead. Therefore, it starts to become more realistic to accept that it could provide a return to people who invest this, who take part in, in the risk that's involved in that. So we still have the problem of poor people needing money and therefore having sometimes to pay back loans with interest, which they can't afford. So it's not that the usury problem disappears, but it becomes much, much less um, obvious. It, the more dominant use of money becomes through capital, and capital is productive. So we can see these changes in thinking about the ethical side of economics in this sense as the actual economy is changing. So that's, I think, the first background point. The second one, then, is where we actually get economics developing as a separate body of thought. You know, we just said Aristotle's thinking about economic questions, but he doesn't think of himself as an economist. You know, we, we're used until the mid-1700s that philosophers are thinking about economic questions. But around the mid-1700s, we start to get the separation out of economic thinking from philosophical thinking. Um, it starts to become a subject in its own right. And unfortunately for the British, who always want to say they're the ones who started the economic um, discipline, it doesn't start in Britain. It starts in this country, which is what you'd expect because Italy's much longer commercial tradition. It was the center of Western economy, maybe even bigger than that, for, for much, much longer. Um, so it's not a surprise that the first separate um, treatise on economics is produced in 1756 by a priest 
who has the chair of economics, the first chair in the world economics at uh, Federico Segondo, the, the university in Naples. Um, and uh, he produces this text, which many people would say is actually quite connected in many ways with Adam Smith's text, which comes out 20 years later. So these two are both philosophers beginning to write about economics as a separate subject. So I think we need to think about two basic um, contextual factors that influence what happens subsequently at the time of the birth, if you like, of economics as a separate discipline. First of all, we're in the midst of the Enlightenment. We're seeing the beginnings of liberalism developing. So it's not a surprise that this idea that human freedom, meaning freedom from, no constraints on me, um, is, is very influential in the subsequent development of economics, as well as the relationships being contractual, no more than contractual. You know, that's also starting to become normal idea in the thought, philosophical thought at the time about any kind of public um, activity. So the Enlightenment is very, very influential on the philosophical background of e economics. But then, perhaps even more importantly, we need to take into account that everybody thought Newton was a kind of a god at that time. And the economists really want to be like the physicists. Um, and so there's a, a, an American economist, um, um, Heilbronner, Robert Heilbronner, who jokes about how Freud would say uh, that women have a penis envy. They really would rather be men. And similarly, economists have a kind of physics envy. They really would rather be physicists. And hence, they, they absolutely adopt uh, this mathematical language um, and they abandon or any kind of philosophical reflection. Economics becomes, as much as they can make it, a mathematical subject. The language of economics becomes mathematics. Um, and they think that really distinguishes them when the later social sciences develop from all those sorts of fluffy things like sociology and, you know, and political science that just blah, 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 you know, not serious thinking like they have because they're using mathematics. Um, so, so these are very, very influential in the way economics develops. So when we actually get to the point of business ethics as a discipline in its own right, people start teaching courses in business ethics. We have all this background. You see the first courses in the US in the 1970s in the business schools. Um, so given this background, I think it's not a surprise that um, if I give you a text which really isn't extreme, it's quite representative of the kind of text that you would get in business ethics, uh, manuals, teaching, resources, and things like this, um, that it's this kind of text. I should say something about the author first. Elaine Sternberg uh, was a, a big financial guru, and, and she was very important in financial operations. Um, she, at a certain point, decided to give all that up and reinvent herself as a business ethicist. Um, so, of course, she was seen as very serious by um, all kinds of journals. For instance, The Economist adopted her as a kind of house ethicist, and they were always referring to her. So you probably know The Economist is kind of Bible for the big uh, businesses and many thinkers in, in the economic sphere. So she writes this book with the title Just Business, which is, of course, a play in English between justice, just as justice, 
and just meaning only business, not all these other extraneous things all around. And in this book, she um, wants to say she's an Aristotelian. That's another reason why I thought I'd use this book. Um, she wants to argue that she's an Aristotelian. The main reason why she says this is because she thinks business has ends, business has goals. Okay, and we should talk about these. Um, now, she is used by The Economist in, in a couple of very, very influential surveys that they do in the early 2000s, so before the financial crisis, on this thing called corporate social responsibility. Um, I mentioned that because she talks about social responsibility in this quote, um, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment. So the quote itself, as you can see, just as prostitution occurs when sex is proffered for money rather than love, so it exists when business pursues love or social responsibility rather than money. So we've got a perversion of the ends of business. Interesting. Business managers who eschew maximizing long-term owner value and direct their firms to any other goal are as much prostitutes as artists or sportsmen who sell out for financial gain. And then we get the last line to reinforce her Aristotelian credentials, supposedly. In each case, the activity is perverted and the right true end, using inverted commas as she does, the right true end is neglected in favor of some other extraneous objective. So I think you can see if this is really representative and you just have to take my word for it, I think it is pretty representative of the kind of thing that you got before 2009, there wasn't much we could do with this. You know, in, in this university, we launched a master's program in um, con, um, collaboration with the LUMSA 2004, and I had to do the module on ethics. And I always had to have the first few lessons explaining to the students how I couldn't use any of the mainstream business ethics texts or anything like this with them. We had to just put all this stuff on one side and then start from some marginal thinkers like this one here that we, we will say something about in a minute. Um, so a few Dominicans, um, some things by Professor Zaman, you know, you have to try and reconstruct, starting from something a bit more serious of, of an ethical nature. So I just want to have a few words now about these people on the margins who include quite a lot of Dominican thinkers in the 20th century. And because Arthur Friedenbutz produces the most, I would say, elaborate thinking about natural law and economics, I use him here. But I could have talked about Louis-Joseph Lebray. I could talk about some other Dominicans who are living still. Um, you know, we have a lot in these two books. I'll say something about that at the end. Um, now, this um, text that you have here, this slide, is a basic kind of synthesis which I've done. It's a synthesis based on, um, from various parts of the fourth volume of his five-volume Social Ethics, which he wrote right at the end of his life. He dies 2001. Um, so this is sort of crowning of his set thought. Um, there's other volumes about other parts of Social Ethics. Volume four is Economic Ethics. Um, so those of you who have been following this conference and know something about natural law, I think will um, see very clearly that we have something looking like a natural law analysis in this structure, level one, level two, level three. Um, I should say also that he uses this term economic order a lot. It's a very Germanic term. You don't hear of it much outside Germanic um, 
literature, but it's actually quite useful, especially when we're thinking about putting natural law together with economics. So we've got this level one, which is what we, we were talking about yesterday often, this, these first principles, these first precepts, the, the most general, the most abstract, the supreme norms, or we could also say the ideals to which we want to aim, um, or we could say the level that we would be at before the fall, if you like, human beings as they could have been without sin, or they could be at the end, sort of eschatological kind of idea, which remains a kind of ideal level that we should keep trying to move towards, okay? So he puts two basic things on this level. The first statement is, the common good is prior to the private good, okay? Um, and then I quote from him, attention to the environment is of the highest order among ethical requirements. So this is decades ago, he's saying this, uh, the environment as a kind of a common good, it should be put ahead of private goods at this first level. Okay. Um, the other point is that everybody should have a chance to participate in the economy. That's also a level one requirement um, and should have uh, so access to work or in some way participating in the economy. Also, access to cultural and spiritual goods are fundamental. They're not added extras, just like basic goods for our physical welfare, you know, food and um, clothing and all that kind of thing. Um, now, I think this level actually fits very well with what we were talking about yesterday insofar as we were saying, you know, these are things which people should be able to know without any sort of big theoretical development. Just an ordinary person in the street shouldn't be able to get the first ideas, the first uh, principles and precepts of natural law. Because I think if you went out on the streets and asked you know, a beggar or a tourist or a shop owner or anybody else out there, and you asked enough of them, especially, so you start to get a sort of statistically significant result, um, what would be the economy you would really like to live in? You know, what if we could get rid of all the problems we have in the economy now, what would be really the, 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 the economy that you would think would be really good, the one we should try to develop? Well, I'm sure they'd say all sorts of things, but I reckon the two most common things they would say is we need a sustainable economy, not one that's not going to destroy our environment. So that's common good is prior to private good. And, and they would say, and we want everybody be, to be able to be part of it. No one left behind. Everyone, you know, we don't like it that people are excluded, that there's people on the streets. You know, people don't like it. We'd much prefer if everybody could be involved. So, you know, I think this is really actually fitting very well with this basic natural law thinking. Then we get to level two. Level two is the concrete situation, the kind of beings we actually are. We're not fully developed. We're on the way. We're changeable. We're sinful. It's where we are now. It's where history really counts. It's where different countries can have different trajectories, all this kind of thing. Um, now, on this level, he would say the main consideration is we need private property. And, and the fact that the Jerusalem community uh, in the Acts of the Apostles gets into trouble would be because they actually mix up these two levels. They, they perhaps thinking the end is coming now, we should have the eschatological level, so level one applies to us now. They put all their goods together and then they sort of forget about it. And they, they start having economic problems. And of course, St. Paul has to have this 
you know, whip around, get this collection to help them, you know. So um, we we do need systems of private property in order, as St. Thomas gives three reasons, you probably know this very well, so I'm going to go into it. Um, uh, lots of other people have. We need private property in order to produce goods. Um, but that private property is for the sake of, of sharing. So the private property is a kind of means to an end. It's not an absolute. Um, or we could say private property is for the universal destination of goods, which is the term that you hear in Catholic social teaching. So, for instance, paying taxes is absolutely normal. You'd expect to have to pay taxes on, on your private goods because that's about supporting the universal destination of goods and somehow having universal use, even though we need some kind of private property. So then uh, to finish this thing of goods, he would say, then we have level three, which are all kinds of practical problems that businesses have to deal with. And you see in his book, he talks about them, things like just wages, like just prices. Um, can we have strikes? You know, all kinds of things like this. Um, and he would say, but we can't deal with those issues at that level if we haven't got the other two levels put right. So in other words, you can't ask businesses to be ethical on their own without this framework, basically. They need to be working in this framework. So, okay, we've talked so far about what was the mainstream and who were the marginal thinkers. Um, now we come to the starting of the relationship, this absolutely cataclysmic event the financial crisis. Well, we could say a lot of things about it. Basically, we get a, a huge breakdown mainstream consensus. So there's a lot of things we could say, just two very quick things. There was a, a business, uh, a professor of business in London Business School called Sumantral Goshal, who wrote an article which was published in 2005. So it's published before the financial crisis with the title, Bad Management Theories Are Destroying Good Management Practices. And it was all about what was being taught in business schools at the time. Now, he was a professor of business. Nobody took much notice of it. After the financial crisis starts being cited all over the place, this article, along with others that were saying something similar. Now, the other interesting thing about that article is that Goshel was dying when he wrote it. And it was finished by his son and one of his colleagues. So it's a kind of a creed occur from this guy who knew what was going on, could see what was happening, could see we were on a really destructive path and was trying to say something before he died you know, about it. Um, so this article is was really studied after 2009. Another thing that really starts happening is people start talking about purpose. You know, you can't open a journal now about business or management without there being something about purpose in it. And I'm not talking about the purpose that Elaine Sternberg was talking about before. This is a purpose which says things like we should be promoting human development or we should be protecting the environment, you know, or, or uh, we should be good corporate citizens or all kinds of things like this. Um, so the really crucial thing about this is that we're seeing goals coming back into the discussion. This is teleology coming back into the discussion. Whereas before we had this idea, everybody had their own private goals, and in the economy, we just produce the resources so that then everybody could achieve their private goals, and we don't discuss anything about goals. Hence why Sternberg could say the only goal of business is maximizing value for the owners. Um, 
Now we start to say we have to start sharing some goals. And this is very significant if we're going to start talking about natural law and business ethics. I just mentioned that it's also supported by other developments. The UN in 1999 agreed these millennium development goals, which were for poor countries. The idea was that the UN governments, NGOs, charities, everybody would coordinate around achieving these goals. They were absolutely public social goals. And then these are followed up in 2015 with the successor goals, which are called Sustainable Development Goals, uh, which also UN agreed for all nations. And there's a whole procedure you have to go through. Every country has to monitor every year how it's doing with regard to these goals. So we have ever more um, this, the idea that we should have shared goals, not just private goals, public goals. What happens then as in, in the literature on business ethics? Well, um, this is a table. This is a table that comes from an editorial in 2015 in one of the big business ethics journals called Business Ethics Quarterly. Um, it's celebrating 25 years of the journal. Um, and what they did was look at what were the subjects that were looked at over the years by the different um, contribute, contributors to the journal. Well, there's a lot of things we could say about this, but the one thing I want to look at is the little gray line, the last line, which you may not be able to see, but it's virtue ethics is the last line. And um, this starts off very low at the beginning. It goes up a bit to 2005, then it goes right down again to 2010. But then from 2010, it goes very sharp increase. Articles on virtue ethics. Other subject areas are going down at that time, apart from CSR, corporate social responsibility, some other topic they've been talking about. But the one that's going up the sharpest is virtue ethics. Now, virtue ethics can mean a lot of different things. Um, it um, doesn't only mean virtue ethics connected with natural law. For instance, there's another article that's looking at all the, the um, contributions over about a 30-year period to business ethics journals and argues that about 25% of them are based on McIntyrean virtue ethics, which is not a natural law-based virtue ethics. So we can have different types of virtue ethics. So increasing virtue ethics doesn't necessarily mean automatically an, a closer discussion of natural law. But we do get some interesting articles, and I give you these two examples. First one is called Thomas Aquinas on Justice as a Global Virtue in Business. It's published in 2012 in Business Ethics Quarterly. One of the authors, Klaus Dierksmeier, um, is the successor to Hans Kuhn at the head of the Welt Ethos Institute, the Global Ethics Institute founded by Kuhn. Um, you can see in that article, I put it in brackets, natural law is mentioned 34 times in that article. It's actually 40 times in the article, but six of them are in the titles of journals in the bibliography at the end. So it's mentioned 34 times in the text. And you can see it's to do with the fact that he wants a global ethic. He wants to look for um, resources that will help business develop a global ethic. And he thinks because Thomas is talking about the natural light of reason, we can get there. And they say things like, Thomas manages the tension between cultural diversity and moral uniformity. It's exactly what they're thinking you need for a global ethic. Okay. 
We could say more about it, but I think that's sufficient for now. The other one is called Personalist Business Ethics and Humanistic Management. This is written by a woman, same year, Acevedo, I think she's Spanish, Journal of Business Ethics, another of the leading journals. Um, she mentions natural law even more, 43 times. Um, and what she's trying to say is we can think about this big field that's called humanistic management either in a non-personalist, and so she would say things like Hume's idea, the subjective view of the person that could be behind this non-personalistic view, or a personalistic view. And she wants to say personalist, humanistic, big mouthful, management uh, is much more serious proposal than some of the others. And she tries to argue this using Jacques Maritain as the foundation for it, and obviously with uh, natural law behind because she's talking about it 43 times in the text. Um, so then she tries to apply this to a number of areas like uh, uh, marketing and product development and education, things like this. So you can see you've got two articles here, one looking at the way businesses manage themselves, that's the Acevedo one, and the one looking at the global ethic for business both of them using natural law. Now, you might say, well, okay, these big journals did publish them, but did they really become mainstream, these articles? And that's where you need to look at the citations. So the first one gets cited nine times in other journals in the EBSCO Business Source Premier, which is one of the main uh, databases for business um, publications. The other one, five times. Now, you should know that uh, most business ethic articles on average, get cited between five to 10 times. That's the kind of standard level of citation. You do get articles which are cited more, but they are kind of outliers. So the normal is, is these are in the normal range. Okay, so what you can see from this is these articles are being talked about in a normal kind of way like others. Um, okay, uh, this, this is, I'm just showing you this slide here with these, um, uh, connectedpapers.com. Sorry, thank you. Um, this is a very interesting website where you can put the name of your paper in and it will give you this interesting um, kind of graphic trying to show you what are the papers that have similar arguments to the one that you're interested in. It's not based on citations, this website. It's based on similar arguments being used in the papers using AI technology to do it. Um, so you can see here, I put the DXMile one in, you can see there's various other groups of articles around which are connected with the DXMile. You could start looking at that. If you put another business ethics article in this website, you'd get a very similar looking graph. So this is another way of showing that it's getting into the mainstream. So to conclude, are we looking at a blossoming relationship? We're definitely looking at a relationship now. Um, virtual ethics has arrived. And so has corporate purpose. Teleology has arrived in business ethics. It's not yet clear whether it will become a natural law-based virtue ethics, but I think the signs are good because of the environmental crisis. It's the problem we're facing which is pushing this issue. That's the one thing I wanted to say before when I lost my line. Um, we, it's not the thinkers who are pushing this. It's the people who are facing real problems who are saying we have to talk about the goals we are um, thinking about. And they're pushing the thinkers to try and incorporate the stuff into their thinking. The last thing I would say, though, that and this is where I'd be interested to hear things from theologians, philosophers, is that in these articles, the natural order has its own end. There is no role for grace. 
Um, I suppose it's kind of obvious in a way that that would be the case. Um, but it does, it is a bit of a limit from the point of view of a Thomistic, um, idea about natural law. You know, if we think about John Milbeck's very interesting lecture, which he gave about a month ago here in the uh, John Paul II lecture series, um, he talked about right integralists, he called them, uh, uh, thinkers on natural law. And, and these would be the ones who think that there's a goal of nature itself, independently of grace or anything supernatural. Um, whereas he calls the left integralist, he's not saying in terms of right and left political. The left integralist, he thinks, are the ones who think that there is a natural openness to grace and, and we can't achieve our natural ends without the help of grace. Um, so I would say these articles, they are more right integralist, uh, according to Milbank's um, position, which might be a bit of a problem from our point of view. So just finishing, you can see here, I tried to say this point at the end because I think we really need the support in social sciences of the other faculties. And I wanted to use this chance um, to say in this interfaculty conference, interdisciplinary conference, that you know, the more we can do together, the more we on the front lines, if you like, in, in social sciences can have the big guns behind us, the philosophers and the theologians coming up with stuff to help us do this work, the better, because I think there's going to be more and more chance for this. You can see the problems are pushing us in this way. If we can put more out there, we can do more for the mission of the church. We can also help society more. And we've got about a thousand pages in these two books of, of stuff about what Dominicans have been doing. So, you know, it could be done in terms of theology and philosophy, I hope, as well.